Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hello and welcome to the Awakening Empty Nester podcast. We are so pleased you can join us in today's show. I am Michelle. And I am Mark, your host of this podcast, a show that was designed for you, the Awakening Empty Nester. In this series, we will be bringing you a whole range of inspiring insights, heart-filled stories, and conversations with truly amazing people. People just like you. People who have navigated through their own challenges, lessons, and opportunities. People who have transitioned to living a life of deeper experience, heart-filled contribution, and consistent awakening and growth. Find out how they are all living with what we call a strong ECG life pulse. Let's discover more as we dive into this episode. Whether you're an empty nester or not, we trust you will enjoy today's show. Let's get started. Hello and welcome back to the Awakening Empty Nester podcast. Thank you for joining us again today as we record this session in May 2020, an opportune time in the world right now where we have more time to connect and have interesting conversations with wonderful people. Today we're extremely excited to welcome our good friend Mr. Paul Hinchcliffe. We got to meet Paul through an organisation called the SES, or the State Emergency Service. Michelle and I decided to join and to contribute to this community, and it was through that association that we got to meet Paul. Paul is the head trainer, we'll go into that in a minute, of this particular group. He's an amazing guy, and he's had a wealth of experience through his life, and we wanted to share his story with you today. Welcome, Paul. Yeah, thank you, Mark. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you for joining us. Would you share some of your background? You know, where you're from, what you've done, what have you done to get to here? I was born in England um, in 1956 in a place called Dover, Kent, um, a wonderful little place. Uh, Moved to Australia with my family when I was uh, almost 17 years old. Joined the Commonwealth Bank and worked with the Commonwealth Bank for many, many years before leaving the Commonwealth Bank and joining Credit Union Australia. And during that time, I uh, met and uh, uh, married my beautiful wife, Deborah, happily married with two children and six gorgeous grandchildren. Wow. Wow. Yeah, it's absolutely wonderful. Done a lot of voluntary work over the years, um, uh, more so nowadays that I'm retired. Love sport, very much enjoy sport, really enjoy walking. I've done lots of really great walks. Throughout my time, sort of really enjoying life. Had some tough times. Had some quite a number of health issues, but I don't let them get me down. That's a real key, isn't it? I mean, we get subjected to a couple of challenges in our life, and health is one of those things, isn't it? But it's the mental and the emotional... um, Mastery. Mastery. Hmm. That's a good word. Yeah, it's how we deal with that. Do we become a victim of it, or do we allow that to dictate our life, or do we get around it and really start to experience some of the things that we really want to do in our life? Mm. So that's some of the things, you know, from our discussions that we've had, Paul, is some of the things that I've been very impressed and, and love about you is that you're out there and you love hiking, and as I said, you love your SES and the things that we do there mm. as well. Mm. As Mark said, that resilience, we can feel that in you to overcome challenge. And even in your training, you're always in a solution mindset. So you went from banking. You were in banking for, was it how many years? Almost 40 years. 40 years, right. 
yeah. 40 years. It was, it had a very good career. I was very lucky. Worked, started in uh, New South Wales, uh, then went to Papua New Guinea for 12 months or so. Oh, wow. Back to New South Wales and then up to Queensland. Eventually, I left the Commonwealth Bank and uh, joined Credit Union Australia and just had a really fun, exciting career. Made a lot of moves. It mm-hmm. was challenging that way, but it was a great place to work, a great career. What was it like in Papua New Guinea? How different was it to here in Australia? <laughs> Extremely different. Actually, it was funny how I came to go to New Guinea. I was only a young person. I was uh, 20 years old working in the Illawarra in the Commonwealth Bank. Our accountant at the time said, look, all the young fellas needed to stay behind this particular night because somebody from head office was coming to talk to us. Right. Well, uh, that evening, this gentleman came in, showed us a, a movie, a cinema movie about yeah. working in Papua New Guinea and said to us that there's opportunities for us to go and work there if we liked. Went home that night, thought about it a little, came back, spoke to the accountant the next morning. I said, look, I wouldn't mind considering that. He jumped on the phone, got off the phone, said, Paul, you start in December. <laughs> so, wow, okay. Up to New Guinea for 12 months. Initially yeah. in a place called Kimbi, which is on the um, same island as Rebel, but at the other end. An extraordinary experience for a 20-year-old man or yes. 21-year-old. I turned 21 while I was there. It was just, it was just so different. Um, working with the locals up there, uh, travelling out into the bush, the real bush, mm-hmm. doing uh, remote banking out of the back of a truck. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. So yeah, it was a great growth experience for me. Yeah, wow. that sort of experience is something that. The more of us who have that, the more open our eyes are to the world, right? You know, especially, what, 30, 40 years ago in Papua New Guinea. Yes, it was very yeah. different. Would have been very wild then, extremely. It was wild. <laughs> it was wild. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So have it, was, you... it was good fun. It was good fun. Yes. So have you travelled much apart from Papua New Guinea? Have you done much travel? Up until more recent years, up basically up until retirement, no. And that's one of the reasons I chose to retire early was because Deborah and I really hadn't traveled a lot. Okay. So that was one of our dreams. We wanted to do a lot more travel. So we've done a fair bit since then. Um, um, I've taken back Deborah back to England several times now and she's fallen in love with the place and yeah. I love it too. But I wouldn't live anywhere else other than Australia, but we love <laughs> going back to England. We've done a bit of Asia, uh, done a bit of Europe and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, we're doing a bit of travel now now that we're retired and it's great. Yes, and once this lockdown ceases, where's the next travel destination? That's a tough one uh, because right today I think we should be somewhere in the Mediterranean on a cruise. Oh, right. Um, so obviously that was cancelled. We've just got to make a decision. So we will wait until uh, all the refunds come through, if they come through, mm-hmm. and then we'll make some decisions. But we still want to do the Mediterranean. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. I've got desires to do China and some more of Asia. We'll just have to see if that actually happens. Yes. <laughs> hopefully it will. Yes, hopefully it will for everybody. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, for sure. Now, that's one of the things that we love to do as well. Travel is such an amazing thing, isn't it? It's um, You get to experience all parts of life, you know, different cultures, different religions, different foods, architecture, which I love. It's a really cool thing to do. More locally, though, Paul... What is it you do locally here from an experience point of view? I know you've got grandkids, as you shared. How do you experience yourself and life here? Our number one priority is always family. 
Yes. And now that we have six gorgeous grandchildren, yes, we try to spend as much time as we can with them. Yes. Um, which is just wonderful. Uh, my son and his family live up on the Sunshine Coast, so for the last couple of months, it's just not been possible. But prior to that, we would travel up there fairly regularly. My daughter and her family, uh, husband and family, live down at Coomera, so we can see them a bit more frequently, and we do. A lot of babysitting uh, <laughs> when it's when available, when possible. We do a lot of that. I also have a brother who's younger than me, unfortunately had a major stroke a few years ago, and he lives in a aged care facility now so i provide him a lot of support too down at the gold coast right. but families family is really the big thing we love love just love the grandkids so <laughs> yeah yeah so you've been an empty nester for a few years now by the sounds of it um yes eight years about something like that that hasn't been hard because they live so close Mm-hmm. Uh, although my son and his family lived up at Rockhampton for quite a while. Right. So that would mean that every couple of months we would have a long drive up to Rockhampton, spend a few days with them and drive back. So that was long. But they're now living on the Sunshine Coast, which makes it a lot easier. Yes. And so when you have family close, it makes it, it – it's it's a good, good option for us. Mm, Plus we – generally have a conversation with every single every day either on the phone or through facetime or something like zoom or something like this so we do a lot of that as well we're actually um we have a big family um deborah and i for as long as i can remember put on the family christmas party and our christmas parties we have people come from different states Mm -hmm. to visit our christmas parties which is the early december i think the biggest crowd we had was 65 people here on but 50 50 to 60 is fairly normal. Wow. We just love family. We're just right into family. What would you recommend to people in how to cultivate a really tight-knit family, whether their kids are still at home or whether they have left and off in spending their own life and uh, doing their own thing now? How do you, what would you recommend pe- to people? How do you really cultivate that? I think it's not try to run their lives. Yeah, don't try to run their lives. Uh, just provide as much love and a support and guidance but accept that they will make their own decisions and really encourage them to make their own decisions Mm. and live by whatever decisions they make, but be there to help pick up the pieces if need be at the end. Right. That's beautiful. We do that. Yeah. Mm. Beautiful. And you know that just feeling that there, I felt your heart be there to pick up the pieces that just reminds me of why I like you so much as a person, Paulie, you're, you have a heart to serve. We met you through the SES but just through our conversations, we can really feel that you're somebody who's a loving and a giving person. So when did you first start volunteering? I think, with my memory serves me correctly, <laughs> uh, when I, in my early days in the Commonwealth Bank, when I was a bank manager, mm-hmm. I saw opportunities. Because we moved away from home when I first got the promotion into bank management, it was important to get to know people other than just the staff in the branch. And I saw that as an opportunity if I get out in the community in different ways. And initially, I was in my early 30s. I joined the local Lions Club. And then I joined a a town promotion committee, which is like modern-day Chamber of Commerce, Mm -hmm. and got very involved in those type of things. It was quite funny, actually. Uh, We, whilst I was there, we built and developed a tourist office as such. Mm-hmm. in town and um, we used to have a roster and I was on the roster once every 
month or so, I'd have to go and man this tourist office on a weekend, which is quite extraordinary because West Wollong is outback New South Wales and I'm a city yeah. boy and uh -huh. people coming in, I'm trying to encourage them to look around the outback. It was, it was, <laughs> it was, it was a fun, extraordinary experience. So I'd sit there most of the day reading all the brochures, trying yeah. to find out what's happening around this place so right. I can explain it to other people. But yeah, that was when I really got involved. Uh, I think throughout my banking career, I've tried to do a variety of different things. Mm -hmm. uh, more so now that I've got the time, now I'm retired. Right, um, yes. Some, some of the ones I've really enjoyed was uh, basketball. Again, through as a result of my banking, I couldn't go and watch my young son play basketball because mm. he played during school hours. But when we moved to Queensland, his basketball was on a weekend. And it was great. So I was able to go and watch him and I got a little bit involved there. It wasn't long after going along as a parent watching him play in this particular team. And it was a huge organisation or association. The coach of that particular team that my son was in happened to be the president of the association. Mm -hmm. so he invited me along to one of the meetings. And of course, from there, it went on. He then left. I became the president. Uh, we were short of coaches, so I put up my hand, I'll do some coaching. I knew nothing about basketball. <laughs> I knew nothing about basketball. I said, look, give me an under-12, I think it was an under-12 boys team, and we will learn together. And mm -hmm. we did. And the first training session I had with these boys, I think, was on a Tuesday night. The first game was the following Saturday morning. And at that stage, I'd met all the boys. We'd thrown a ball around, didn't really know what we was doing, go to this game. And I remember meeting one of the parents and he came up to me and he said, look, uh, my name is Norman. I'm young fella's father. I'd love to meet you, Paul. How long have you been coaching basketball? And so I put my hand out and I counted my fingers. So I said, one, two, three, four days now. <laughs> I said, but look, you don't need to worry, Norman. I, I don't know much about basketball, so we're going to learn this together. But I know a lot about creating a team and I know a lot about having a lot of fun. Mm. And to me, that was the key. And we went on to win the grand final that year. Wow. Well done. Yeah, so, wow. And, and it, wasn't because, it wasn't because we had particularly skilled players, although one boy was pretty good. Yeah. It was because they played, under 12-year-olds, under mind you, they played as a team. Oh. And that was the whole thing. They went on yeah. and won the grand final. Actually, won it two years in a row. And it was because they were a team. Wow. Yeah, it was. That gives me goosebumps. We had one young boy. And uh, again, I didn't know anything about basketball. I didn't know any basketball players. And apparently there was a basketball player in the US, which all the kids knew. Mm -hmm. He was a very short player and they called him Muggsy. So Muggsy. this young player in our team, uh, he got the nickname Muggsy as well. Now, he didn't have the strength to throw the ball high enough to get into the hoop. <laughs> and so, uh, but he was very fast and... Um, we had some wonderful experiences with him. I want to tell you about two of those. Yeah. Um, I remember sitting on the bench as the coach and his father was sitting beside me, helping with a scorecard. And his son was absolutely everywhere on the court. And you could see the father just absolutely beaming. It was just beautiful to watch. That's what kids' sports all about, mm -hmm. to yes. see the father absolutely beaming. It was yeah. really, really beautiful. This kid had a fantastic game. Still couldn't get a basket, but it didn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> didn't matter. <laughs> the second one was on one occasion uh, towards the end of those couple of years where this young 
child, he got fouled in the penalty area, so I had to have a free throw. Nobody expected him to get it because he can't get the ball high enough. Mm -hmm. And on his second attempt, it went in. And oh, everybody roared. Wow. <laughs> first ever basket this kid had got. Oh, wow. Absolutely beautiful. That's why you do it. That's why you do it. It's just... Yeah, it's for those moments, yeah. Yes, it is. <laughs> it is. Yeah. So it was good. I was um, a president for a few years and then um, coaching quite a few teams at one stage. I think I was coaching about four or five teams. Again, <laughs> didn't know much about basketball, but it created teams <laughs> together. Teams. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that was all about. So that's your strength as a leader to create teams and to help them to, to rise above any other challenges, yeah. And we certainly see that as part of our short history so far in the SES. And what is it about teams that you like and what are the key things about pulling a team together? Everybody's got their own strengths and you need to work on those strengths. Yep. Um, not everybody can do everything. And I don't believe a team leader needs to be the expert. Mm -hmm. My belief is a team leader needs to know how to pull the expertise together from the team and utilise that to the best possible way. I think it's so important that you acknowledge people's attempts all the time, working together to achieve an outcome. And in SES, we have to do that a lot. Mm -hmm. There's no individuals in SES. We are all teams. And that's the beauty about how we work, um, whether it be through storm damage, climbing on a roof to uh, do some temporary repairs, um, uh, putting sandbags down to divert water. You're always working with somebody else and you have to trust them and respect what they can do and get them. Or whether it be going out to rescue somebody, to carry somebody out of a rainforest that's stripped and injured themselves. Mm. You're all going to work together as a team to mm -hmm. initially find the person and then put them in a stretcher and carry them out. And um, it, it's all about working as a team. Nice. And enjoying what you're doing. Yes. yes. Enjoying what Absolutely. you're doing. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. What attracted you to come into the SES? Oh, okay. Um, really, there's two things there. Um, the first one was I've, I've done a lot of hiking and uh, I've done a particular hike in the UK called the Coast to Coast. You walk from one side of the UK to the other. It's about 320 kilometres. Wonderful right. experience. I've done that twice. I enjoyed it so much the first time I decided I needed to do it again. On the second time, we, my wife and I, my wife doesn't walk, but she goes between B&Bs and meets me and we stay the night in a B&B. We were in this particular B&B in a place called Keld in the uh, Yorkshire Dales. Mm -hmm. And while we're having dinner, the owners of the B&B came in with another person that was in some form of uniform and said, has anybody in this room seen a gentleman that looks like this? Mm -hmm. He's lost. And I discovered that this person that came in was part of the local mountain rescue group. And I thought, well, that's interesting. I would love to do something like that myself. By the way, that guy was found. The person they were looking for oh, was found. Really so um, that was the first thing. The second thing was we're home. And in the local newspaper, I happened to see a notice from the local SES group looking for more volunteers. Mm -hmm. And I put two and two together and I thought, yeah, here's my opportunity. I can do that mountain rescue type of thing that I thought would be good. And I can do something in the community, which I really, really enjoy. And I have. Mm -hmm. I've been in the uh, local unit for five years now, just over five and a half years. 
mm-hmm. and done a whole variety of things and done lots of rescues, uh, lots of storm damage support. And as you mentioned earlier, I'm now the unit's um, training officer. doesn't make me anything special. It's just that I coordinate the training across the unit for the formal courses. Mm. Yeah, wow. So you talked about teamwork and now as a trainer, you are helping others to upskill. Tell us a little bit about the skills that an SES volunteer would be able to learn from being a volunteer. Yeah, that's, that's a good question, uh, Michelle. The, you don't have to have special skills to join the SES. Everybody brings their own skills. As you mentioned before, I've worked in the finance industry all my career. So when I re- finally retired, I had skills in the finance industry and the leadership and the teamwork and all of that. I knew nothing about how to carry a person in a stretch. I knew nothing about first aid, never picked up a chainsaw and so on and so on. So we teach all our skills. Right. Now, when, when you join an organisation such as SES, you don't have to do everything everybody else does. You mm. choose what path you want to go. Mm. So, for example, um, we do flood boat rescues. Well, I'm not really interested in going in a flood boat. There are a lot of other people who are prepared to do that. So I'll let them do that. And I will focus on other things. I'll focus on the things that I enjoy doing and I get a lot out of. Mm-hmm. And um, those people like to go in boats, let them do the flood boat training and so on. Similarly with the vertical rescue, we teach people how to go over the side of cliffs and buildings and things on ropes to safely rescue people whenever it's necessary. Well, again, there's a lot of people that love that sort of thing, and I'm sure I would, but there's enough people doing that. So I'll focus on the things that I really, really enjoy. Mm, yeah. That is the rescues, um, search and rescues, and the storm damage. Right. And yeah. it's, it's such a wonderful community. And just as Mark said, our very short time there, we've loved the, the culture, loved the, the connections that we've had with the team, and loved your leadership as well. But also the experiences that we are yet to have through learning, through upskilling, and the growth we're about to have as well while we're contributing. It's, it's just a wonderful place just in itself to experience life and to raise your what we call the ECG life pulse. As we were talking to you and Paul earlier about the ECG, meaning the more you experience, the deeper you experience life, the more contribution you have in your life, whether it's to yourself or towards others, and the more consistent growth path that you're on, the more life is just fulfilling, isn't it, Mark? Yeah, absolutely. And mm. That's why what attracted us to the SES, it really epitomises those three pillars that we have in our business and our life more than anything. So you've had some very interesting experiences yourself, Paul, as part of the SES and from our previous discussions, some really challenging ones as well when we've had to rescue somebody that may be lost um, right through to helping somebody via a flood boat and many other various things. Have you got a couple of stories maybe of those experiences that really highlight some of the, you know, the good things about SES? Well, Cyclone Debbie is probably a good example. Um, Cyclone Debbie a few years ago, which obviously started up in North Queensland, but did reach us. It hit Tambourine and even further south pretty hard, even though we're at the tail end. And um, we were kept very busy from the night it hit right through for the next 48 hours and there were just numerous calls coming through all the time 
for people with trees down over their houses, trees down in their front yards, roofs um, torn apart, floodwaters going in places. Where is this water coming from? You just don't know. But these massive floodwaters, even up here on the mountain, we did a lot of sandbagging throughout the night. Once it settled, I think about 2.30, I think it was the Friday morning, the 2.30 in the morning it settled. Uh, one of uh, our other colleagues was unable to get home because of the floods. So he came home with myself and we had a spare room. We were only settling for about 15 minutes and then the call came, they started again. And the next mm -hmm. lot of calls was the floodboats down at Tambourine Village. And the floodboat team, I'm not part of the floodboat team, but I went out to assist. The floodboat team rescued numerous people off the top of houses where floodwaters have never been seen before. So mm -hmm. that was really, really interesting. Other ones would be actual looking for people that got lost. And in the first couple of years, we used to do a lot of that up at O'Reilly's and up at Binnabara. We would get a call in the early hours of the evening because it's the early hours of the evening. People haven't returned to wherever they're supposed to be returned. And then the message goes out, please call us. And we head up there. And there's been some really good ones. We go up and uh, we just go and find the people and get them back to safety. Alternatively, we get a call where somebody may have been injured. And I think the longest one I've ever done, we had to take a stretcher in in the night to carry somebody out. And the carry would have been something about 10 kilometres. Okay, wow. <laughs> it was extraordinary. Yeah. So again, you just do those things. The adrenaline gets going and you just go, go, go. On that particular occasion, there were three of us went out. The park rangers, the family, and of course the injured party were at the location where we had to go and get this gentleman. He had fallen off a cliff and busted himself up pretty bad. Mm. Uh, we got to him. At one stage, we had to find a way around a massive tree that had fallen down. So we had to climb up a steep bank down the other side. Let's keep going. Mm. As we're coming out, we still had that tree. So what we actually did, the stretcher is on, on a single wheel. So it's like a wheelbarrow type of thing. We mm -hmm. actually had to take the stretcher off the wheel and had to thread this gentleman on the stretcher through the downed tree, through the branches in the tree. Oh, so really? That was really, really challenging. So threading him through from one side to the other to yeah. get past because we wouldn't have been able to climb up or climb down. So you uh -huh. do things like that. Another occasion, I recall, uh, half a dozen of us, we had to go and find a couple that had gone out late afternoon. And mm -hmm. if you know the rainforest well, you know it's going to get dark. And when it gets dark in the rainforest, you can't see a thing because mm -hmm. there's nothing. And um, they had stepped off track only a few metres, but couldn't find their way back to the track. Fortunately, they were able to get to us a GPS reference, so we knew where they were. So half a dozen of us went down following the GPS. We got to them and they're only a matter of a few paces off the track. And of course, oh, us no. with the torches and things. And then we had to walk out and with them with all their bags and things. It's good doing that. Uh, more recently, we've had one up, at, up here on the mountain where we've had to carry out a lady who had busted her ankle. And we got support from the local fireys too. They came in to help us as well. The downside of some of that is sometimes we have to, sometimes we have to carry out uh, people who are now deceased, because right. accidents or sometimes people do things by choice, mm -hmm. and they're not the fun. But you do it because you know you're doing it for the family. 
And as you've shared just on that point, if that's not something that you feel that you are able to do mentally, emotionally, then you don't have to. There's no requirement. There's no, nobody forces you to do those sorts of things. Yeah. And in fact, we, we have a process that the group leaders or those that have more experienced will may even make a choice at the outset that, look, we don't want this person to come along with us on this occasion because we're not sure how this person will actually handle it. Yeah. We'll leave them with me. We'll leave them with me. So we, we make some of those decisions too. And that draws out what we were talking about earlier about the skill of running a team and knowing the strengths and where people's skill set and selecting the appropriate people for the task, right? Yeah. We have a term we call fit for task. There you go. So um, you don't take somebody out on a long hike looking for lost people if they can't walk very far Mm. or if they can't walk fast enough. And uh, there have been occasions when I've been out when we've had some people needing to sit and rest when we really should be pushing on hard. We're getting a bit tougher on that. Make sure that people are fit for task on all occasions. Mm-hmm. That is important. And that's purely because you need to handle what's going on at the time, right? So it's nothing to do with that person. It's about Safety. we have a job we've got to do and do it and enjoy it, as you said before, as best as we can. Yes, yes, that's right. Doing volunteer work is good for your own personal well-being. It's good mentally because when you know that you've helped somebody else, it makes you feel good. So that really improves your own life by helping others. Definitely. We totally agree with that. It does raise your life pulse by contributing and knowing that you've made a difference, as small as it may be. And, you know, you talked about fitness There's fitness in all sorts of ways, the physical, the mental, the emotional, but we feel also the fitness in that ability to ripple from your heart and give and to affect not only the people around you, but by rippling out that love. You Like you say, you go and help someone who is lost and they get found. Their family is so happy for that. And then that ripples out as they talk about it to somebody who might then decide, oh, I would like to help as well. And then that ripple effect just keeps going and going and going. Yes. So it's, it's a beautiful thing, you know, that having that fitness for, for love. Absolutely. Yeah, for you, you, love. You, you will find that um, all volunteers join organizations for different reasons Mm. but most of them have it in their heart they just want to help yes and that's the lovely thing that's the lovely thing about it Um, so if you look in just our local SES unit we've got people from all sorts of different backgrounds and all sorts of ages and totally different people but they're there for a good reason Mm. they're there for a good reason and you mentioned you're enjoying it for us it's like we're a family Mm. And we call ourselves the Orange Family. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it is, it is a family environment. Yes. It is, very and much so. Talking about the Orange Family, I believe you went with your Orange Family and did a Kokoda Challenge. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah. Yes, okay. So the Kokoda Challenge is held on the Gold Coast. It's actually, they also do one, a mini one in Brisbane and Melbourne, I believe, as well. But the one on the Gold Coast was where it was founded. And it was founded by a gentleman who wanted to raise money to send young people to Papua New Guinea to do the real Kokoda track. So oh. it's all about raising money for them. The one here on the Gold Coast starts at Mudgerabar and then goes inland over all the mountains, up and down mountains, and finishes back at Narang, about 96 kilometres. 
and you need to finish it within 39 hours. If you're not climbing, you are descending. It is really, really tough. They say it's the toughest team challenge in Australia. I wouldn't Mm. believe it. And so a couple of years ago, a group of us decided we would get together and attempt this. And it was myself and three others from our SES family. Mm -hmm. And we trained really, really hard. Mm -hmm. We started training in the January and the actual event is in the July. During that time, we would have training hiked that we tracked around about 700 kilometers during that period of time. So we did a lot. We trained in the morning, trained in the afternoons and trained on weekends, just walking. Luckily, we live on a mountain, so we're up and down hills all the time. So that really, really helped. (laughs) For me, the experience was just wonderful. I now have a dear group of friends, which I love so much. Mm. We are so close. We worked together really, really hard. We supported each other through that. We all had all sorts of challenges, including the physical challenge. Mm. And then it all culminated in uh, in July last year. We actually entered with hundreds of many other people uh, mm. to complete this challenge. Our desire was we would walk across the finish line as a team. Yes. Beautiful. We did. However, one of our members unfortunately got very, very sick during the course of the challenge and had to pull out. But she was very brave. She worked so hard. She was certainly fit enough to complete it. There was no doubt in our minds, but she got very sick uh-huh. and, and sick, dangerously sick, that if she had continued, it could have been really serious. So yeah. she had to pull out. But at the end, she, she walked out, met us about half a kilometre from the end, and we still walked through the finish point. Uh, nice which was something really fantastic. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It was really, really lovely. Lots of emotions with that one. <laughs> because um, you could imagine uh, you're going to walk nearly 100 kilometres or climb nearly 100 kilometres in 39 hours. That is physically and emotionally strenuous. For sure. Very it's tough strenuous. going, yeah. Yeah. Wow. But I'd do it again tomorrow if I could. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And you yourself have surmounted not only the mountains, but your own physical challenge. Yeah, the, look, um, I have Crohn's disease. It's one of those hidden diseases that people don't really see. I've had it since I was about 30 years old. I've had it a long time. Had um, a, several operations for it. I only have half a bell and now on lots of medication, but the beauty is the medication that I've been on in recent years has really settled it very well. So I'm totally comfortable with it. The other issue is... One of the side effects is I also get kidney stones and I've had lots of kidney stones, have been to hospital on a regular basis to have kidney stones blasted and that will continue into the future, I guess. Mm-hmm. And it's just a matter of, yeah, that's the way it is. Just get on with it, move on. If I'm having a bad day, well, don't do anything and uh, have a good day, enjoy it. And your good days, you're giving, you're giving so much, you're helping the world. I admire you, Paul, admire you for what you do and for your love of contribution and you influencing and inspiring others to do the same as well. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So we're getting towards the end of our chat. So Paul, you've shared with us so many experiences, so much growth, so many instances of you contributing. And you've done all this since your retirement, done a lot of it since your retirement. What's next for you? What do you see as the next part of your life that you're looking forward to? 
<laughs> that's that's really a hard question for me because I don't see a next step. I would just want to continue doing what I'm doing because I'm enjoying it. Right. right. Love my family. Love my grandkids. Want to see them grow and prosper. I want my children to um, be successful in their careers and things. Just want to be part of that. Mm -hmm. uh, Deborah and I, we want to travel again, but yep. at the moment, that's all put on ice. Yes. Uh, certainly. And as far as volunteering goes, um, I also volunteer for another organisation here on the mountain. Mm -hmm. Volunteering with SES, I will continue that because I do enjoy that. Maybe I'll change my role from training officer. I don't know. I enjoy training. We'll just see how that goes. I don't see that there is a, a definite next step. Mm -hmm. It's continue to do what I'm doing and enjoy. Yeah. Yes. Well, that's a good thing that you'll be staying with the SES, Paul. We look forward to much more of your guidance and leadership. Well, it was an honour to have you, Paul, as our guest to share your life journey with our audience of Empty Nesters. You have certainly shown that no matter what our experience is, we can use our skills, our gifts and our learnings to make a difference in each of our communities. You have also inspired us with your resilience in overcoming tough physical and mental challenge and your love for continual learning and teaching. If any of our listeners are inspired by this podcast episode with Paul to join the SES, please do let us know. You can find more information about the SES as well as bonus links about Paul in the show notes. Thank you, Paul, for leading with compassion, for helping our community feel safe and supported through your leadership and also through the ripple effect of many others being guided by you. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Paul. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is the Awakening Empty Nester podcast. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. If you enjoyed what you heard today, share with a friend. And if you have not already done so, please subscribe, rate and review the show on your favourite podcast player. If you have any questions, comments or feedback for us, you can reach us directly at podcast at thedreamarchitects.com. Looking forward to you joining us on our next show. Thank you for listening.